Hey everybody, welcome back to the Tipsy Ghost. We're your tipsy hosts, Sarah, Sarah, and Lindsay. Hey guys. Hello. I do have a question. Yes, answers. Okay. You have a, a I wanted to call it a stuffy. Are they called stuffies? <laughs> a stuffed thing behind you? Is that a brown worm or a mustache? I call it stuffies. Um, it's, it's, <clears throat> I, it's. Is it a turn? It's diarrhea. What? That's, Stop. That's what. Why? Hang on, let me get it. What is wrong with you? That's diarrhea. <laughs> Why do you have a stuffed animal of diarrhea? That is solid diarrhea. I'm confused. What? I thought it was a mustache. I thought it was like a worm. <laughs> I mean, I guess it could be with I- diarrhea. <laughs> It is whatever you want it to be, but I got no. it for my birthday from my sister, who knows that I like like medical things. So she got you poop? She got me the <laughs> microbe that is Campylobacter jejuni or diarrhea. It's got but eyes hold it up on to your it. face. <laughs> it, yes, it does look like a mustache. <laughs> I was like, why does she have a mustache stuffy? I'm going but to diarrhea. pretend that it is like a cryptid worm <laughs> or something does like that. Eyes. I was like, is do you want to like hold a, my diarrhea? I don't want to touch your diarrhea. <laughs> Why Keep you your diarrhea to yourself. <laughs> yeah, I don't know because I've seen it <laughs> several times. Okay, now it's staring at oh, me. It's you know got what red he needs? eyes. He needs tiny hands sticking out, like our, our little tiny hands <laughs> oh, that we yeah. have. And then it'll look like a character. I don't like this. <laughs> like, yay, diarrhea! Yay, <laughs> yay for me! Yay, yay I'm not C diff. I've got the shits. Cool. Yeah, taking your love of creepy and weird to the next level. Uh, to be fair, I didn't ask for this. I just appreciate it. <laughs> you didn't it. ask for the diarrhea. I n- nobody ever does. <laughs> it's just a gift. I want you to take this around to people though and see how many people guess if it is actually diarrhea. I think only an infectious disease doctor will get that. Like you'd have to give several hints though. I feel like um. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't even look like diarrhea. It looks like a turd. Well, because it's just a little microbe. Yeah, because diarrhea is. Yeah, you'd have to say this is a microbe. What? What is it? Yes. <laughs> Anyways, what are we doing tonight? I'm going to entertain you. Entertain me. Ooh. Ah. What? <laughs> sounded a little weird. Is it too... Maybe too... it's because I made eye contact with diarrhea <laughs> when you said it. Like that's his voice? <laughs> yes. Ooh, Lindsay. It's me, diarrhea. We call it... Uh, we called it die-die at our house. Die-die. <laughs> what? When the kids were little. Oh, my gosh. It's just you and die-die. <laughs> Make an eye contact. <laughs> die, die. I'm so disturbed on so many <laughs> levels about tonight already. Yeah, I don't know how that happened. It just did. But anyhow, entertain us. Okay. Entertain me. All right. March 13th, 1964, 28-year-old Kitty Genovese left the bar where she worked at around 2.30 a.m. As she was driving home, she stopped at a red light, as you do, following traffic laws. <laughs> And Good job, well done. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. While she was waiting on the light to change, she was spotted by a 29-year-old Winston Mosley, who was sitting in his parked car. Okay, Winston. She arrives at her apartment building around 3.15 a.m., parked her car in the Kew Gardens Long Island Railroad Station parking lot, uh, which is about 100 feet from her door. So she gets out of the car, she heads towards her apartment door, which is located in an alleyway at the rear of the building, and unbeknownst to Kitty, Mosley had followed her home. So as she's walking, he gets out of the car, which he had parked at a bus stop on the corner. He was armed with a hunting knife, so as he approached her and she sees him, she is startled, of course, runs towards the front of the building, 
And Mosley chases after her, and he catches up to her, and he stabs her twice in the back. Oh, dang. So Kitty screams out, like, oh, my God, he stabbed me. Help me. She's hollering. She needs some help. And several of her neighbors heard her cry, but only a few of them recognized the sound as a cry for help. And we'll get to that later. Wait, so you're telling me she says I'm being stabbed in the back, and he's... That's that's too bad. Yes. I know the story. Sorry. You should know the story. Yes, I do. One of her neighbors, Robert, shouted at Mosley to leave her alone. And hearing witnesses, he ran away. So Kitty gets up. She slower, slowly makes her way towards the rear entrance of the building. So that's where her door is. But this takes her out of view of any witnesses from the front of the building where she was at. So she had been stabbed in the chest. And it punctured her lung. At this point, she's no longer able to scream for help. It's It's punctured her lung and it's collapsed Uh so it was later reported that there were witnesses who saw mosley return enter his car drive away and then return 10 minutes later and he put on a disguise which what was the disguise what do you think who has a disguise in their back of their car it's um a mustache a mustache and uh that's actually diarrhea sunglasses it's diarrhea mustache aviator sunglasses just the diarrhea mustache really stop talking about (laughs) die mustache. <laughs> I'm so Yikes. sad that you asked what that was. <laughs> well, maybe it was one of those like uh, glasses with the nose yes. attached and and the little mustache. You know, what I wish about? it was. That was like, a missed like, opportunity for him. Yeah. <laughs> Guess who? <laughs> Nothing to see. Surprise. Well, it was just as great. It was a hat. Maybe Ooh, a, a so fedora. Different. A fedora. Yeah. No, I'm disappointed. <laughs> and so he began to systematically search the parking lot, the train station, and the apartment complex trying to find her. And he eventually comes across Kitty, who was now just barely conscious, lying in the hallway at the back of her building. Mm-hmm. So now they're out of view of the street and the earlier witnesses who stalled, saw the initial attack. So she's in a different location witnesses are going to be different now. So Mosley proceeds to stab Kitty several more times before raping her, stealing $49 from her, and running away again. And these attacks lasted about 30 minutes. There were knife wounds on her hands that suggested that she had attempted to defend herself. Mm -hmm. Her neighbor, Sophia, found her not long after the second attack and held her in her arms until the ambulance arrived. And this was around 4.15 a.m. And unfortunately, Kitty died on the way to the hospital. So let's talk about Kitty. Kitty was born Catherine Susan Genovese, and she went by Kitty. She was the eldest of five children born to a Catholic Italian-American set of parents. Uh, The family lived together in Brooklyn, where Kitty went to an all-girls high school and was described as self-assured beyond her years with a sunny disposition. So just really outgoing, really fun. She had graduated high school and was engaged to be married when her mother witnessed a murder. Mm. And after she witnessed the murder, they decided they needed to get out of that area. And so the whole family moved to New Canaan, Connecticut. But Kitty stayed behind because she's engaged to be married, and she was living with her grandparents for a while in Brooklyn as she prepared for the marriage. So she gets married later that year, but it was annulled before the year is over. didn't last very long. And this is when she moved into an apartment in Brooklyn, working in clerical jobs that she found unappealing. But by the late 1950s, she accepted a position as a bartender, and in 1961, she was Briefly arrested for bookmaking after taking bets on horse races from her bar patrons. 
That's a different kind of bookmaking than I was thinking of. So she and a friend were fined $50 and they were fired from that bar. But she got another bartending position at Ev's 11th Hour Bar in Queens. And pretty soon she was managing it on her own. She worked double shifts to save money and she had a goal to open an Italian restaurant with her dad. That's a sweet little goal. It is. She shared her Queens apartment with a uh, her girlfriend named Marianne. So a little quick bit on Mosley. Winston Mosley was from Queens and worked at Remington Rand as a tab operator, which was preparing the punch cards used for data input for digital computers. Okay. He was married with three children and had no criminal record. So six days after the stabbing, Mosley was seen removing a TV from a house in a different neighborhood in Queens. And one of their neighbors, Raul Cleary, was instantly suspicious and he questioned him about it. So thinking on his feet, Mosley claimed to be a hired mover. But Mr. Cleary was like, oh, I don't I don't believe you. And so he went to another neighbor, Jack Brown, to see if he knew anything about these neighbors supposedly moving. Mr. Brown confirmed that the neighbors were not, in fact, moving. And while Mr. Cleary went to call the police to report the robbery, Mr. Brown goes to Mosley's car, and while he's not looking, he yanked a wire to disable the vehicle so he wouldn't be able to get away. That's quick thinking. Yeah. So the police come, and they arrest Mosley, and they take him in for questioning. And one of the detectives remembered a white car, similar to Mosley's, um, was reported by some of the witnesses to Kitty's murder. So he tells homicide detectives who come to question him while he's at the station being questioned for the robbery. And during this questioning, Mosley admits to the murders of Kitty as well as two other women. Oh, gosh. Wow. One was Annie Mae Johnson, who had been shot and burned to death a, oh. few, a few weeks earlier. And then Barbara Kralik, who was a 15-year-old um, that was killed in her parents' home the previous year. But both crimes occurred in neighborhoods within Queens. So while he was giving details about Kitty's attack, he provided the detectives with a motive. What do you think his motive was? Because he's a psychopath and we hate him. Okay. Um, uh, um, sex. Okay. You're not, uh, it's- We're wrong. (laughs) (laughs) You can tell me if I'm wrong. It's okay. You're not totally wrong though. It's misogyny. Okay. I get a half point. Because he's a butthead. Mm -hmm. So he said his motive was simply to kill a woman, Mm. saying he preferred to kill women because they were easier and didn't fight back. He said he got up around 2 a.m. that morning. His wife was working a night shift as a nurse. Uh, He left his children alone and drove through Queens to find a victim. Jeez. Mosley saw Kitty on her way home and followed her to the parking lot and then attacked and murdered her. Subsequent psychiatric exams suggested that Mosley was a necrophile, and that's where Mm. your half point comes in. Okay, see, I was thinking these things. Mm -hmm. He was charged with the murder of Kitty, but was not charged with the other murders he admitted to, because another man, Alvin Mitchell, had already confessed to the murder of Barbara Kralik. Hmm. So it got a little hairy. I'd say. Yeah. Mosley's trial began in June of 1964, and he initially pleaded not guilty, but his attorney later changed his plea to not guilty by reason of insanity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. During his testimony, he again described the events on the night he murdered Kitty. And he also described the two other murders he confessed to earlier and to numerous other burglaries and rapes. So this was not his first yeah, crime. This wasn't his first time. The jury deliberated for seven hours and ultimately found Mosley guilty, and he was sentenced to death. 
But in 1967, the New York Court of Appeals found Mosley should have been able to argue that he was medically insane at the sentencing hearing, and so they reduced the sentence to life in prison. He escaped from prison in 1968 while being transported from a hospital following a minor surgery for a self-inflicted injury. Mm. When he did that, he hit the transporting officer, stole his weapon, and fled to a vacant house that was owned by a Mr. and Mrs. Kulaga. So he stayed there for three days until the Kulagas came home. And at that point, Mosley held them hostage for more than an hour, binding and gagging Mr. Kulaga and then raping Mrs. Kulaga. After this, he took their car and fled to another home in the area. And there he encountered a woman and her daughter. And he held them hostage for about two hours before releasing them unharmed, thankfully. Shortly after, though, he was he surrendered to police and was charged with escape and kidnapping. I don't know about the rape charge. I was going to say, and not rape? Yeah, TBD. Uh, He pleaded guilty to those charges and was given an additional two 15-year sentences. In addition to his license that he already had. Yes, but it's differing. So I don't know if it was at the end, so he was just life plus 30 years, or if it was serving at the same time. Or maybe it took away some of the chance for parole or something. He still had parole chances. Ugh. Of course he did. So in 1971, he participated in the Attica prison riot. Later in the 70s, he obtained a bachelor's degree in sociology. So, (laughs) two different ends of the spectrum. Okay. He became eligible for parole in 1984, and during his first parole hearing, he told the board that the notoriety he faced due to his crimes made him a victim, stating, quote, for a victim outside, it's a one-time or one-hour or one-minute affair, but for the person who's caught, it's forever. Stop it. Yeah. Yeah. What about the victim's families? (laughs) Yeah, you have to deal with this. I hate Uh, him. (laughs) At the the same hearing, he claimed that he never intended to kill Kitty and that he considered her murder to be a mugging because, quote, people do kill people whenever they mug them sometimes. I didn't Mm -hmm. mean to kill her. I just stabbed her so many times. Left and came back. I just mugged her. I didn't murder her. I didn't know that stabbing so many times would lead to death. Yeah. No idea. I don't know why he sounds like this. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, man. It's probably probably right. It's probably right. The board denied his request for parole at that hearing. Good. Thankfully. He later returned for another hearing in 2008 on the 44th anniversary of Kitty's murder, but continued to show little remorse and parole was again denied. He was denied parole for an 18th time in November of 2015. Good. Can they just, like, keep asking for parole 18 times? Yeah. And he died in prison in March of 2016 at the age of 81. He died recently, more recently than I thought. Yes. Well, that's good. I thought you were going to say he was paroled, and I was going to be really disappointed. He he was paroled to the depths of DC to JC. Yes. Mm, I don't know. JC took him in. Okay. It, I don't think JC. It would might take be S S. What's Satan's last name? <laughs> no, it's Stan Satan. <laughs> DC to S S. L S. Lucifer Satan. Okay. <laughs> Satan Lucifer. Uh, we'll have to settle on something there. Sir. <laughs> Sir Satan. Sir Satan. <laughs> Got it. He had served 52 years, making him one of the longest-serving inmates in the New York prison system. Hmm. So, the aftermath and where 
Lindsay might know this case from. It's noteworthy for a couple of reasons. And the first reason has to do with the reactions of the witnesses. So two weeks after the murder, the New York Times published an article claiming that 38 witnesses saw or heard the attack and that none of them called the police or came to her aid. Mm-hmm. Okay, yes. This is sounding familiar. Yes. Mm-hmm. Say This is a famous case. Mm-hmm. The article quoted one unidentified neighbor as saying that they didn't want to get involved and they went on to report that they saw... Mm-hmm. A part of the attack, but deliberated for a while before getting another neighbor to call the police. Yeah. Another article later said that another neighbor witnessed the attack and ran to turn up the radio so that they wouldn't hear the screams. Jeez. Sorry. That's terrible. Yeah. So this prompted outsiders across the world to view this murder as proof of the callousness or apathy of life in big cities, especially New York. Mm -hmm. And this perception and the fact that people couldn't comprehend why so many people would see or hear such attacks and not do anything paved the way for something called the bystander effect that Mm -hmm. is now a staple in psychology textbooks. Yep. The bystander effect is essentially the idea that a bystander is less likely to help a victim when in the presence of others than if they were alone. In the thought that someone else will step in or someone someone else will call the police versus if they're alone and the witness uh, and they witness something, they'd be more likely to assist. So more bystanders leads to less assistance ultimately. And this could be because people think that others present are much more qualified to help, that some just don't know how to help, or that bystanders feel uncertain about stepping in while others are watching. They don't want to be judged for how they assist. Investigations into the bystander effect have provided a ton of research on helping behavior and conformity continuing to influence social psychology today as it highlights the power of situations that affect individual perceptions, decisions, and behavior. And so another theory on the lack of intervention was that Several witnesses thought that it was a domestic fight. And at the time, Mm -hmm. in the 60s, it really wasn't commonplace for people to get involved in other couples' quarrels. Um, And the wild thing about this, though, is that the original article grossly overstated the number of witnesses and what they had perceived. So they said 38 witnesses Uh did nothing, essentially. They called out this entire apartment building and was like, you guys just stood around while this woman died. That's just not the case. So since it took place in two separate locations around the building, no one actually saw the whole attack. Many only saw a glimpse of it and even more didn't even recognize the cries for help. Mm-hmm. Again, thinking that maybe it was a, d- a domestic fight mm-hmm. or just a couple of drunk people being loud coming out from bars. And so the reported 38 witnesses turned out to be more like a dozen or so. And even more, only two people were aware that Kitty had even been stabbed. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was uh, Joseph Fink saw the first attack near the front of the building, and a Carl Ross was aware of the second attack. He heard it outside his apartment door at the back of the building. And finally, police interviews did reveal that some witnesses had attempted to call the police, but records of the earliest calls to police are unclear and were not given a high priority. Which brings me to the other reason that this case is so noteworthy is that at that time in the 60s, there was no 911. Mm -hmm. I was just going to say, I feel like I know this because of a 911 issue. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. So you would set a bunch of numbers by the phone. The police station had a different number, the firehouse, ambulance crew, a hospital. Mm -hmm. Everybody had their own number and you just pick whatever number you wanted and then call hoping that the line was open. Or you'd call the operator and wait for them to connect you. Um, And there was also issues with 
the police at the time. Um, it was just a weird time in the 60s in the city. And they were really suspicious of things like that. Didn't really step in. Sure. There were just some just some issues. Yes. Mm-hmm. Things have things yeah. have changed, hopefully. So the complexity of this process was one of the reported reasons that there was delay in getting help for Kitty. And always a step ahead, the UK began using <laughs> 999 for reporting emergencies as early as the late 1930s. So 999 is their 911. So in the United States in the late 1950s, there was a National Association of Fire Chiefs recommendation that a single number be used for reporting fires. And then Kitty's murder happened in 1964, and this increased the urgency for a creation of a central emergency number to decrease any delays. And 911 was created. So 911 was chosen because it was simple, easy to remember, and it dialed easier on the rotary phones when compared to 999, which is true at the very end. The rollout was slower than I actually imagined due to multiple agencies being involved, the costs involved, and then failure to recognize the benefits of the 911 system. Coverage began in the late 1960s. By 1979, only 26% of the population in the United States had access to dial the number. This increased to 50% by 1987, and then 93% had access by 2000. And as of March of 2022, so this year, 98.9% of the United States population has access to dial 911, which is it seems high, but it's still baffling that not everybody has access to 911 mm-hmm. in this day and age. I will say not everybody has phones. Is that all they mean by access? Is that they have a phone, or is it? I that- think it's location based. It's not covered in I all see. areas. Yeah, even if you don't have a phone, you can still have like go to somewhere that does or a hospital or, or something close by. But if you're saying it's not covered right. in that area, that's different. Yeah. Cause so dialing 911 links the caller to an emergency dispatch office who will then send the caller's information and location to emergency responders in about 90%, 96% of the United States, the enhanced 911 system automatically pairs the caller numbers with a physical address. So you call and you get the right jurisdiction and they can actually pinpoint your address pretty easily. This is altered if like you're in a big building, um, but some buildings you can even pinpoint the the floor you're on in the room. Mm-hmm. So it can be pretty accurate. Some states require all landline telephones connected to a network be able to reach 911 even if the normal service has been disconnected for whatever reason. And carriers are required to connect 911 calls to inactive mobile phones. So if you didn't pay your bill, you can still call 911. You don't have a card, you can still call 911. The only drawback is that dispatchers won't always be able to call back if the call is disconnected. Uh-huh. Text to 911 was first used in, used in Iowa in 2009. And even still, only about 1,600 out of 6,000 call centers have the ability to respond to the text to 911. Canada adopted 911 in 1972. This is now the emergency number for the United States, Canada, Palau, Argentina, the Philippines, Jordan, parts of Mexico, and some territories in the Caribbean. And that is... Kitty Genovese in the history of 911. So the next time you call 911, think of Kitty. Well, hopefully they don't have to, but yes, mm-hmm. fascinating. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. 
Well done. There is a very good documentary on Netflix about her. Have you seen it? The Witness? Witness. Yes. Ah, Maybe that's where I've seen it. It's very good. Yeah. There's a few good documentaries. I watched um, A Crime to Remember. They have an episode called like 38 Witnesses, and it was done very well. Interesting. Very interesting. Yes, I learned about this, obviously, in my undergrad years, and there's been a lot of cool experiments that have been done to test the bystander effect. Yes. Like one that sticks out in my mind was another DV where it was a guy who was pretending, obviously, to beat up his girlfriend and like all these people came to her defense and you know all this, but then they flipped it where she was beating him up and nobody did anything. Nobody intervened. They all just stared and like kept moving because when they were interviewed later, they were like, well, they saw her as helpless and needing defense and they were like, He's bigger than her. He can take mm-hmm. care of himself. Right. Or somebody else is going to intervene or something yeah. like that, you know? Well, yeah, it's fascinating that, you know, the number was so grossly overstated that prompted all of this research, but mm-hmm. it's actually accurate that several people didn't. And so right. it is it is a real problem. There was a – it's on YouTube. It's called Mindfield, M-I-N-D. And one of their episodes – covered this case and conformity and the bystander effect. And they just did different types of like quick studies to see if, so they had four actors in a room and the fifth person was just, was the sub, the test subject Mm -hmm. and they would ask questions and then the actors would sometimes answer them correctly just to like gain trust. But then they would start all answering them incorrectly. Mm -hmm. And so eventually they would see if the, the test subject were would conform, would fall in line with, with something that they knew was the wrong answer, but they're like, well, everybody else is doing it. Uh-huh. So, uh-huh. And a lot of the time, almost most of the time, people conformed and they just went along with what everybody else was saying, even mm-hmm. if they knew it was wrong. It was yeah. just very interesting. It's like a herd thing. Mm-hmm. Power of persuasion. Definitely. Well, and, you know, one of the things we always talked about in psych and sociology is our basic human desire is to belong. Yeah. And so to have approval. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, thank you so much for your little commuter episode. You're the history welcome. of 911. And the bystander effect. Yes. yes. Love cool. it. All right, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in this week to our little commuter episode. You can always find us at thetipsyghost.com with our socials linked from there. And send us an email at thetipsyghost at gmail.com. Please give us a five-star rating and a great review anywhere you listen to podcasts. We really appreciate it, and it really does help. All right, guys. We will catch you guys next week. Okay, bye. Bye. Bye.